grateful that we have a word to preach, that we have news to preach. And so, Lord, I pray that as I go about doing that, you would bless your word as it is proclaimed. Open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, to receive it. And, Lord, would you give us a greater glimpse of your glory, your holiness, our sin, and the atonement that our Savior has made for us because of the great love. Lord, I, help that, uh, I pray that you would help us, that this would be a help to us as we seek to fathom the greatness of your love for the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. Last week, we drank from the wells of God's promises to make for his people a stronghold, a place of safety and security. And this was the responsibility given to the little M, Messiah. David began to fulfill that responsibility when he, with the Lord's strength, destroyed the enemy's stronghold of Jebus and replaced it with the stronghold of the Lord's people, Jerusalem. And what Jerusalem was, was sweet. And it was a gift of the Lord, a reminder a tangible taste of his strength and his refuge for the people of God. But Christ is the refuge for the people of God. How sweet in a world of risk and struggle and of threat and violence and death, a world of enemies, to have a place of safety a place of security, a stronghold, a strong tower, a fortress, a place to fix your eyes when you think of the enemies and you turn your eyes upon it and be comforted by the strength of the Lord your God. You remember that at the end of that passage, the historical account of what David did the work of this little M Messiah, the result of that was great rejoicing, feasting and joy. And this is the Lord's design for the office, the role of Messiah. And since Christ Jesus is the full and final and great Messiah who fulfilled once and for all the office of Messiah, in a way that all the other messiahs, anointed kings of God's people, were simply shadows of. And we too are reminded of the responsibility given to Jesus by the Lord God, his Father. The responsibility given to him to be the stronghold, which we, when we are afraid of the enemies of our souls, the enemies of the church, even sickness and death itself. And we turn our eyes to him, as Hebrews 12 tells us, to fix our eyes 
fix our gaze on him and be filled with the sweet comfort of refuge and safety of the Lord our God. But there does remain a problem. Even when the people of the Messiah have a refuge to turn their eyes to in, terms of, in times of trouble, it is our eyes that are the problem. And that was one of the problems we saw in the days of Judges, if you remember that, as we went through the days of Judges, the, the period of time immediately preceding the time of the kings. Remember that recurring phrase, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, of course, it's not merely a problem with ocular nerves. It's not merely a problem with your glasses prescription, but it is the blindness that comes from sin. Our ability to see what is good and what is evil, our ability to see how worthy God is of worship and how foolish and how unworthy idols are of worship, and even how unworthy even good things are of worship and adoration. See, we see sinful pleasure on one side, and we see God's glory on the other, and we have a hard time figuring out which one is more beautiful, how blind we are. For the people who belong to the Lord's Messiah, though, This is also a responsibility given to him by the Lord God, giving God's eyes to his people. And we can see this in the next events recorded in First Chronicles, where David, the anointed Messiah, seeks to restore worship before the ark, the ark which represented God's holy presence with his people, essentially it was his throne on earth. And that does bring us to our first point. And the Messiah is to give the Lord's eyes to his people. And I pray that you can see this with me as well as we go through First Chronicles 13. David seeks the counsel of the leaders of the people of God. And we're told his plan seems right in the eyes of the people, and that is a red flag. Wherever you see that phrase in Scripture, you want to scream to the people in the pages, don't do it! Let's read First Chronicles 13, 1 to 14. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader, and David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all the people from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all the people went up to Bala, that is Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there 
the ark of God, which is called the name, called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark, of, uh, the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. The people of Israel want to worship the Lord. They want to worship in the presence of the Lord. And they attempt to do it in a way which seems right in their worldly eyes. There's just so much they get right here, though. It is good that they wanted the ark to be now the center of the, the, the worship of God's people representing his throne on earth. But then they add to it ways that seem right in their worldly eyes. They carry the ark of God, which represents God's throne on earth. They carry the ark of the Lord on an ox cart in the very same way that the Philistines carried the ark of God around when they captured it from Israel. And they couldn't see what was wrong with this. They couldn't see what was wrong with this. David couldn't see what was wrong with it either. They are worshiping the Lord in the same way that the Philistines taught them. And the oxen stumble, and the ark look to fall to the ground, and, and Uzzah, seeking to guard the honor and dignity of the Lord, reaches out a hand to keep the ark from falling. And he's killed on the spot by the invisible hand of God. Now, you can imagine that scene. Great, loud singing and dancing in, in, in a procession. Instruments blaring. Every instrument they can get their hands on. Great rejoicing and joy and singing and dancing. Loud. Turn to a deafening silence. When Uzzah's life is taken right before their eyes and he falls lifeless to the floor. Silence. Far cry from how the previous chapter ended with cakes of raisins and rejoicing. Israel had forgotten that they were, in fact, given the remarkable gift of the presence of the Holy God who made heaven and earth. 
the holy God in whose presence no sinner can stand. Yet though they were sinners, God had provided a way for them to be in his presence. It was something they ought not have, but which God made a way for them to have. The presence of God, being in the holy presence of the holy God and not perishing is not something that you and I are entitled to in ourselves. It's not something that we could have designed a way to get. There's no way to invent a way to be in the Lord's presence and not be destroyed. That is something God had to provide to us. He would need to give that. And he had graciously given away for the ark of his covenant presence to be moved along with Israel as Israel was on the move. The ark was to be carried on poles, which would slip through rings, which were fastened to the ark. And then priests were provided by the Lord, and they would be sanctified, purified, consecrated by sacrifices and cleansing, which God had also provided these sacrifices and cleansing rituals. And then they would carry the ark on behalf of the people of God. It was for their joy and for their good that God had provided this way. Now, brothers and sisters, we read this and we are shocked. How is it that simply carrying the ark the wrong way would lead to poor Uzzah's death? Why is it that there was a way to approach the presence of God that would destroy the people? Brothers and sisters, this is because we don't have godly eyes that we ask that question. If we had the eyes of God to see the holiness of God and the wretched sin of his people, we would be asking the exact opposite question. Instead of asking, how is it that there's a way to approach God's throne and be destroyed, we would be asking, how is it that there is a way to approach God's throne and not be destroyed? And when you have eyes to see the holiness of God as a consuming fire and the wickedness of the sin of even his people, now you are rejoicing that he has made a way when there should have been no way instead of complaining that there should be more ways. And so the ark of God does not go to the place where David had planned for it, but it ends at the home of Obed-Edom where he becomes the caretaker. I want you to see, though, how David turns and he leads Israel away from seeing things from their own eyes. Away from being the Messiah that he thinks they need and accomplishing the messianic tasks that he thinks they need in the way that he thinks they should be done. 
to consulting now the word of God. Not to assume that his mind, that David's mind is the same as God's. Not to assume that the people's mind is the same as God's. But to seek what is right in the Lord's eyes. We first start to see this change when David continues to fulfill his responsibility to bring justice to the enemies of God people, to fight the enemies of God for the safety of his people. We see two battles recorded in the next chapter, in chapter 14. And in both cases, David the Messiah, little m, gets his orders directly from the Lord, the God of the people. Turn with me, and we're going to read from 14, 1 to 17. And I think you'll find that the first seven verses, you, David has not yet started to turn to what is right in the Lord's eyes. But we see this in verse 8. Read this with me. First, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. And we'll read all the way to 17, the end of the chapter. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, and also masons and carpenters to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more wives in Jerusalem. David fathered more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Belidia, and, Eleph- and Elephelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it, and he went out against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a, had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, go up, and I will give them into your hand. And he went up to Baal-perazim, and David struck them down there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of the place is called Baal-perazim. And they left their gods there, and and David gave command, and they were burned. And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. And when David again inquired of the Lord uh, of God, God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Go around and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all lands. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Now in the first case, David asks the Lord if they should go up against the Philistines, and uh, and the Lord says yes. And he gives a great victory. And in the next battle that's recorded here, David the Messiah asks again, and the Lord says, no, but rather go around them and wait to attack when you hear the balsam trees making sounds, making marching sounds in the wind. And again, the Lord gives a great victory for the anointed king, which 
And we're meant to see that the Messiah's responsibilities here and his understanding of how to bless the people, this comes from the Lord's eyes and not the eyes of men, not even the eyes of David. I hope you can see that it was not all the Israelite soldiers' responsibility to ask the Lord to speak to them about how to be rescued from the Philistines. No, it was for those soldiers to follow the words given by God to their anointed king, to their Messiah, their little M, Messiah. So brothers and sisters, David was that Messiah, little M, the divinely anointed king of Israel. He was appointed to rescue Israel from her enemies. And he did need to consult God's prophets to know how to redeem God's people according to God's wisdom. And so we're not to think that now we, because we're not messiahs, are supposed to ask for divine direction for how to get a job or fight a war, expecting God to speak to us through prophecy. Rather, as the soldiers of David did, we're studied to, to hear the words given to our Messiah and his prophets, the 13 apostles which he appointed. And so we see that David is now responding to the word of God in how to redeem his people. It was right in God's eyes rather than what is right in David's eyes. And then in chapter 15, then in chapter 15, we see that David is now finally applying this to bringing the ark of the Lord to the city of David, the stronghold which the Lord had established. Now, I want you to notice the focus on searching the word of God for God's commands about the ark. The word of God which gives us the eyes of the Lord to see what is right in his eyes and not in our own eyes, which are blinded by sin. Let's read chapter 15, and we're going to read 1 to 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites, the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief with 120 of his brothers, of the sons of Merari, Asiah the chief with 220 of his brothers, of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief with 130 of his brothers, of the sons of Elizaphan, Shemaiah the chief with 200 of his brothers, of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief with 80 of his brothers, of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief with 112 of his brothers. Then David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites Uriel, Messiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule, 
So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we cannot and could not give ourselves the eyes of the Lord. We need, and David says he shows he also needed, a greater Messiah, the Lord himself, to give him the eyes of the Lord. We need to see things from what the Lord sees as right. That's why when we are assembled to the Lord in his presence as a church, when we want to know how to worship the Lord in his presence, we can't assume that just because we can't see anything wrong with what we're doing or saying about God, we can't assume that that's how the Lord sees it. Worshiping in his presence is an undeserved gift. And we're not permitted to worship as the pagans worship. We worship the Lord as he has commanded us to worship him. We worship him as an assembled church only in ways which he has commanded, not merely in ways that he has not yet condemned. Now recall from our series this fall that the New Testament uses the language before the Lord to describe the church gathered together for worship. That phrase is going to occur lots of times in this passage. And the New Testament parallel to that is when a church assembles as one body to worship him. We're always before the Lord if we know him. But there's a special sense that we are publicly showing what it looks like to be before the Lord when we gather for worship. And you're not going to find a passage in the Old Testament that says, do not put the ark of God on an ox cart. But you will find a passage that says, do carry the ark on poles carried by purified priests. The human heart is an idol factory and constantly finding new idols to worship. It's also, uh, also new ways to worship Jesus constantly people are coming up with. And these ways are actually more similar to the way that pagans worship than how God has provided us to worship him. The way we worship is shaped by God, and it's shaped very wisely because he knows that these things shape our desires. The way we worship God shapes how we see him. It shapes our desires. So by relying only on what the word of God says about worship, what we're doing is we're actually gladly admitting that our eyes are dim and so that we will just simply trust the Lord's eyes. And it is the Messiah's responsibility to lead the people of God to seek the Lord's eyes, to do what is right in his sight. And David repented and began to do this but what David did in part, his great son, Jesus Christ, does in full. He sanctifies, which means makes holy, his people from within. He changes our hearts 
not so that we always know what the Lord would want, but that our hearts would long for and embrace and submit to the word of God. He sends his spirit so that we can now see glorious truths in God's word. To see the things that we read in God's word as true and good and beautiful. To see that they are more beautiful than what the world says. To see the things that God's word says as more glorious than our own ideas of God. Whatever the God is that we would imagine, the God that is revealed in the Bible is more glorious and the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see that. To see God's commands as sweeter and more righteous and more stable than the world's commands and wicked and changing understanding of what is a good and bad person or what is a loving and unloving person. We see how foolish the world's descriptions of those things are and we see that the Lord's descriptions of righteousness and unrighteous are sweet and true and beautiful and good and stable. And so then let us be people who trust the eyes of the Lord the word of God, even more than we trust our own eyes. What his word says is good and holy. Let our own hearts see those things as good and right and holy. Let us not be foolish enough to trust what is right in our own eyes. It is actually very unlikely that the Israelites realized how much the Philistines had influenced their view of what would be worship and which would be pleasing to the Lord. They didn't probably realize how much the Philistines had influenced them to think, oh, God wouldn't care about these things because I don't. God wouldn't see this as an offense because I don't. And so it is with us. I, I, I want us to see this. I, don't, I want us to, to not underestimate how much our culture has affected what you find to be reprehensible or acceptable or perhaps even just wrong but still respectable wrong. And brothers and sisters, in this day, this is very true of our culture's view of sexuality and gender. Now, where the Bible used to simply be offensive to the culture when it has spoken of God-chosen gender roles of what is a woman and what is a man as a man worship God as a man, and how does a woman worship God as a woman? Now it's even offensive that a person actually has a knowable gender given by God, which corresponds to their body. If you don't recognize the blindness of the world without Christ, you will not know how to navigate that problem. Even more, if you don't come to grips with your own ability to be shaped by what is right in the eyes of the world around you, you will be tempted to judge something based upon how you feel about it rather than what God reveals in his word. And make no mistake, how you feel about it will be shaped by the world around you in the same way that how the, how the Israelites felt about putting the ark of God on an ox cart was shaped by the Philistine world around them. 
We're going to see this in two, two ways in which the, the Lord, through the Messiah, is to open people's blind eyes. We're going to see this in two main ways in the, in the rest of the chapter. First is to awaken the fear of the Lord, and second, to awaken a desire for the Lord. So we'll first look at how the Messiah is to awaken the fear of the Lord, which is our second point. And I wonder if you saw this in the passage where Uzzah is struck down before the Lord. We're meant to see very clearly in, in, in David, who serves as a representative of the covenant people that day. Look at verse 12 of chapter 13. David representing his people. And David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? Fear of the Lord is a good gift, brothers and sisters. It is a good and sweet, and it is a life-giving gift. Let's see verse or of, of Psalm 19. We can see this. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. It's clean. The fear of the Lord is good. It endures forever. To have eyes to see how awesome and how terrifying, how holy and how powerful and sovereign and righteous the Lord is. To see, to have eyes to see how terrifying it is to fall into the hands of the holy and living God. To have eyes to see that is a life-giving gift, which is not one that we're born with, brothers and sisters, after Adam's fall. Sin clouds our eyes just to see the holiness of God. It makes us fear men and death and pain and bankruptcy. It makes us care more about what men think of us than what God thinks of us. I want you to ask yourselves this. What do you think of God's holiness and justice and judgment? Do you think that your holiness and righteousness and goodness are enough to stand before God? If you do, you have not received the Messiah's gift of having the fear of the Lord restored to your eyes. Do you think that God's wrath is something that you could endure? You could get over it? God's wrath for your sin, you think your sin is of the kind that you'd be able to get over God's wrath? It would be difficult, but you'd get over it? If, if so, you do not have sound eyes. Those who think that hell will be a party where they will drink with their friends, they need the gift of the fear of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, if you hear those things and you tremble at the thought of facing the Lord in your own righteousness, 
If you consider the wrath of God falling on you for your sins and you cannot think of anything more terrifying, you have received the sweet gift of having the fear of the Lord restored to your sight. And this gift from David's great son, the great and final Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when that fear is restored to your eyes, he also gives you eyes to see the sweetness of having a Savior who rescues you from God's wrath and safely brings you into the presence of the Lord. Which brings us to our last point. It's our third point. The Messiah is to awaken the desire for the rejoicing before the Lord. As the words of amazing grace so sweetly remind us, it is a gift. Grace has taught our hearts to fear. And grace, our fears relieved. And then it goes on to talk about rejoicing for 10,000 years when it will be as though we've just begun. Where? Where are we 10,000 years and it's just the beginning? Where? Before the Lord. In the presence of God. We get an introduction to this need for the Messiah to restore a desire for the presence of God. In chapter 12, where David's reign is compared to Saul's, or uh, in chapter 13, sorry, if you look at verse 3, it says this. David is talking, then let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. The ark of God was a gift to delight in his presence, representing his throne on earth. It was supposed to be the center point of the temple. And if you were before or in front of the ark, you were said to be before the Lord. It was like appearing before a king or a judge. Standing in front of that judge or king, you're presented to him. You're in his presence. You're standing before him. You're not just around him. You're before him. Now consider what was said about Uzzah's death in, in chapter 13, verse 10. See that phrase. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And so David succeeded, where Saul did not. See, Saul's attention was, primary, was focused on wickedly destroying David, the next anointed king, and whether or not this of not pursuing the ark was a failure of Saul's because of sin or just a failure because of weakness or circumstance, we're meant to recognize this is a greater blessing. This is an advancement. This is a reason to prefer David's throne rather than Saul's. The leading of the Lord's people to rejoice before the Lord, presented to him officially. The desire to be before the Lord. Let's read the final portion of our text today, and we can see the full fruition of the work of God through David to bring the people before him rejoicing. Let's begin at chapter 15, verse 16. And we'll read through the beginning of 
chapter 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and his brothers Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and the sons of Merari, their brothers, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, with, and with them their brothers of the second order, Zechariah, Jaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliah, Beniah, Messiah, Mattathiah, Eliphilahu, and Mekniah, and the gatekeepers, Obed-Edom, and Jael. The singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were to sound bronze cymbals. Zechariah, Aziel, Shemariamoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Messiah, and Beniah were to play harps, according to Alamoth. But Mattathiah, Elephaluhu, Mikniah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah were to lead with lyres, according to the Sheminith. Chechaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. Berechiah and Elkanah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Jehoshaphat, Nathanael, Amasai, Zechariah, Beniah, and Eleazar, the priest, should blow the trumpets before the ark of God. Obed-Edom and Jehiah were to be gatekeepers for the ark. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chechaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore linen ephod, so all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought the Ark of God in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before, the, before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Does that sound familiar? The covenant people assemble and the priests are blowing trumpets before the ark of God. Burnt offerings, sacrifices of animals killed instead of the sinful people are offered before God. The scene ends not with terror and silence as the first time they tried to bring in the ark. It ends now with great rejoicing. But the beautiful and ironic truth is that even though this scene ends in joy before the Lord, instead of terror and sadness, it is this event that actually, even though it had joy and fullness of joy, this event had more of the fear of the Lord. The scene with less fear of the Lord was also the one with less joy. And that's Messiah's responsibility from the Lord for his dearly beloved and sinful people 
to lead them with the eyes of God, to awaken both the fear of God and yet a desire to rejoice before God, who they now fear, but yet they even more greatly desire than when they didn't fear him. And so, brothers and sisters, there is no greater joy than to be before the Lord and have your sin atoned for, to stand in his presence. That is Christ's work in you to open your eyes to actually see that is valuable, to see that is more precious than life, to see that is worth giving up all other things to have, and to rejoice when you're able to worship in his presence, to long to assemble with his people, to stand before him, assembled officially before the king. And now those are gifts from the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to his people, to do an internal work, which David was merely only able to do an external work for his people. And these are gifts from the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are gifts that cost him his life. So the reason sinners can long for and rejoice in the presence of a holy God is that their great and final Messiah took on their sin on the cross and there on the cross stood before God. Stood in the presence of the holy God while carrying our sin and guilt and wickedness. Uzzah touching the ark was a mere shadow of Christ hanging on the cross. Uzzah, a sinful man, making contact with the holiness of God's presence. The God who hates and punishes sin because he loves holiness and goodness with a perfectly pure passion. And instead of making contact with the presence of the holy God, bearing the sin of only one man, which Uzzah did, the Lord Jesus Christ made contact with the holy presence of God while he was carrying the sins of billions of people. All the ones whom the Father entrusted him as the covenant head of. You take Uzzah's punishment and multiply it by several billion and then extend it for an eternity of time. And now you are beginning to get a picture of the cost of what Jesus, the great son of David, the full and final Messiah, the cost which he paid in order to give his people eyes to see the fear and joy of the Lord and then bring them rejoicing into the presence of God. Uzzah did not know what he was doing. but the Lord Jesus Christ did, which is why he sweated drops of blood in the garden. He knew exactly what he was facing. And the Lord smiting Uzzah might have been his mercy on Uzzah, preventing him from doing it. But Uzzah stayed in the grave because he was a guilty man. And if he did trust in Israel's Redeemer, 
he will be raised from the grave when the Lord returns. But the grave could not hold Jesus because he was actually righteous. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead to prove that he had not died for his own sin, as Uzzah had, but for the sins of all his beloved people. The raising of Christ from the dead on the third day was the Father saying he approved of Jesus making contact with the holy presence of God while bearing sin. And brothers and sisters, this is a joy which we would have missed. We would have been blind to if it were not for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to open our eyes to see its surpassing worth. We would have been like Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife, who literally saw this with her eyes. She, she did see this with her ocular nerves. She saw this and yet didn't have eyes to see the surpassing value of it. She had eyes but couldn't see it. She despised this in her heart. What David had accomplished for his people, worship before the presence of God, it's something that which didn't cause her to love that God had appointed David to do that and love to see David had done that. It actually made, it was something that made her despise the little M, Messiah. So I want to say a word to the unbelieving guests with us. Just like Uzzah did, you will make contact with the presence of the Holy God. And it won't be you reaching out to him. It will be God summoning you and bringing you. When you stand before him, when you die, or when he returns to judge the living and the dead, do not be a fool to think that you can do that with your own good intentions and with your own plan to stand before God. That he will count wanting to be there or thinking you're good enough or any other motivation. I guarantee your, your motivation is not as pure as Uzzah's. What foolishness that is. When Christ Jesus has been offered to you and been struck down by God's presence for you so that you could stand in God's presence rejoicing. Do not despise what David's great son, the full and final Messiah, Jesus Christ, has done. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So it would be with us, brothers and sisters, were it not for Christ's work to cleanse us from sin and to send his spirit to open our eyes, we too would see the work of Christ and Christ himself and not see it as beautiful. Now the devil saw the work of Christ and he knows what happened, and he knows that Jesus was sent by God. He saw these things, and he despised both Christ and what Christ accomplished. He sees what Christ did and what Christ accomplished. He considers as dung 
compared to the glory of being independent and apart from God. He sees it as dung compared to the glory of personally being worshipped. Or of a long life, or of life without pain, or of wealth, or power. Thanks be to God who loved us when we too were so much like Satan that the Lord Jesus could call him our Father. When we too did not truly fear the Lord nor long for the sweetness of worshiping in his presence. And when we were like that, while we were enemies of God, he made us alive in Christ. And now we can say, along with Paul, that the treasures of the world, our own accomplishments, our own good intentions, being glorified, being worshipped, being respected, being pain-free, all of those things are as dung compared to the treasure of knowing Christ. We can despise treasure in comparison to what we now see as the glory of knowing Christ. We can even despise suffering. Consider it as nothing compared to, what we can, to, to now what we can see as the glory and joy of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord and being found in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have given us eyes to fear you and also eyes to desire you. And we know that this is not something we can take credit for. We are not saved and our neighbors not because we had better eyes. But having bad and wicked eyes, you saw us and you had mercy and affection and grace you called us and while enemies you gave us your son who made contact with your presence standing in in the presence of the holy god as judge while not just bearing the sin of one man but billions and we are grateful that you have counted us among those billions let us be people who don't trust our own eyes who humbly just trust the eyes of our shepherd, recognize what is good, what he says is good, what is pure, what he says is pure, what is holy is what he says is holy, and what he says is reprehensible. We also agree. Lord, I pray that you would keep our eyes from becoming dimmer and dimmer as the world has an influence on us. Lord, I pray that you would awaken in us more and more a fear of you, but also the sweet joy of knowing the gift of being summoned into your presence to delight in the love of a God who we once were enemies of. And I pray that we would worship you in such joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name.